begin today just with a pause about uh, Nelson Mandela because we're studying Torah and um, reading about Joseph and Judah and these biblical characters who uh, whose lives um, have endured now for thousands of years their their influence I mean, what kind of influence is this story had on countless people over the years uh, the whole drama the whole Joseph drama the whole Jacob story the whole Judah and brothers and families and all the dynamics of of what the story is about is so Nelson Mandela to me uh, because it's all about reconciliation it's all about forgiveness and reconciliation and of course that's you know if there's anything that we associate with Mandela um, along with um, personal transformation um, it's the, the power of forgiveness and this story of the reconciliation of, of Joseph and his brothers is for our tradition <coughs> very much sort of the paradigm um, of what reconciliation is all about and the power of the human being to, to interpret our own lives and the things that happen to us in a way that transcends um, what's expected because what, what makes the drama of this story powerful is the natural expectation that Joseph now being in such a power position and after all of if you've been coming every week and following along or reading the the story you know he's been toying with his brothers anyway because he has the ability he's in that position where he can just screw around with them all he wants and and you're sort of waiting for the axe to fall you know I mean it's fallen a little bit and he tortures them a little bit and he keeps one of them and he puts them in jail and he keeps so many you know, all this long, drawn-out drama where you're, there's so many questions that come up about relationships, and once he saw them, you know, you get that he was in a foreign country and he was busy with his own life and he was busy, busy with his own drama and rising to power and all that, and then all of a sudden he sees his brothers, um, a couple chapters before this, obviously the first time, and you wonder why... Reach out to his father. He didn't do anything until this this story. All of the the what ifs that are natural that commentators over the generations have asked about. Uh, he was there for 22 years up to this time. 22 years, and he had all this power, and he couldn't have like you didn't write, you didn't call. <laughs> you know, it's like that one. With Jewish parents, you know, why you didn't even reach out. We, we didn't even tell you were dead. You know, the worst tragedy of life. Jacob sitting for all these years thinking that his beloved son is dead, and his son could have fixed that, changed that, reconciled that once he had the power, which he clearly had, and yet there's not even a hint of him even thinking about dad 
or thinking about home or thinking about that they should reach out until this chapter when he finally <clears throat> does what he does. And I'm, so here's the story from thousands of years ago, I mean, which, of course, I mention often because it's something that I'm always so in awe of. I'm in awe of the Torah. I'm in awe of the fact that we continue to tell these stories and read these stories week after week, year after year, generation after generation. Um, and we read them with the immediacy of a story that would have been written last week or last night. Um, and the immediacy of our own lives, which is what makes them so gripping, is that we, um, we can all relate in different ways to different parts of the story, um, whether it's to the father or whether it's to the brothers or whether it's you know, to our own sibling relationships whatever they might be and um, and yet here we are 3,000 plus years later and we're still wrestling with the same stories and we're still talking about the same people and we're still finding ways that each of us in 2013 about to be 2014 any day now um, can connect and can, can feel taught by this and can feel touched by this and um, I was thinking about the remarkable nature of someone like Nelson Mandela, who is, uh, you know, unique. I mean, there are, there are few people in the world that have the kind of uh, power and impact that that life, which I'm, everyone is now holding their breath again to see what happens to South Africa, because his very presence seemed to hold the whole country together. You know, and everybody in the country kept thinking the same thing and talking in the same way that his, you know, it's like having the moral conscience of the country alive somewhere. And uh, I think he's had an effect on the whole world, though. He's the moral conscience of the whole world. And the whole world. I mean, look at what's happening, look at what people say, look at the commentary. And that's it's also, to me, um, a reminder to us of the power of one person one person, you know, and he's just a person, <laughs> after all, you know, this person with all the foibles of any human being, and, you know, from his violence of the past to the record of the experience of being in jail for 27 years, whatever, and, and all of that personal transformation that one goes through, and the ability to, to then affect the world. The movie last night, for any of you who were here last night, watching the movie about chasing ice, and, and great movie if you want. I haven't seen it about the environment, but one of the things that was so powerful about the movie was just watching the making of the movie in the movie of this insane man, you know, a photographer who kept doing it. I mean, for this this idea, this vision that he knows is going to take years to do. That's the vision. Oh, I'm going to watch set up cameras all over in the most horrific environment on the world and I'm going to then keep checking on them every six months for years to see what they catch in terms of glaciers and ice and whatever all because that's just the real, the real story the visual story sides of, of how we can see global warming or the impact of climate change or whatever 
is to watch glaciers. And so just the, the idea that someone would actually do what he did at, at great physical, obviously, peril to himself and for surgeries and everything else he had to go through, you know, what kind of person has that kind of drive? And, and with that kind of drive, what impact you can have on the world? And on, on. So, um, all of that was uh, Stephen Rubin introduction. Just to go back before you yes. Jacob. Yeah. Was, is there any kind of midrash about why Joseph never did communicate to his father that he was alive? Yes, there are a few. <laughs> Everybody speculates on why Joseph didn't ever so what call was the dad, call home. <laughs> Um, ranging from um, what might be the obvious to some of us, which is Joseph never reached out to his father because the trauma of his brothers and the home, his experience was such that he didn't want anything to do with it anymore. He was lucky, felt lucky to be alive and in a new life. And he's in a new country and a new life, period. I'm in a new country, I'm in a new life. And you know, out of sight, out of mind. My job is to stay alive through my own cleverness and my own wits and deal with what's in front of me. Um, and reaching back to what was then a more primitive social environment where he grew up, it's kind of like, you know, how many people, this is California, how many people are here because they left Duluth? <laughs> for example. Or someplace like that. They left someplace for, you know, the golden shores of California and never looked back, quote, unquote. And lots of people never looked back. That's their, that's their yeah, childhood. But he, he did make contact with kid, his brothers. Why didn't you know? call him, let his father know then? What do they say about that? What do you think? Why do you think? I don't think he wanted to punish the father. They, he didn't make contact with them. No, they they made contact with him. Yeah, he never made contact with them until today. I mean, today yeah. Today's portion, all of a sudden, he goes, you know, is my father alive? The first time he asks. I mean, even though he knows, because they're telling him his father is alive, after all, that's what they, they the whole drama is, Judah saying, you know, I can't go home without Benjamin because it'll kill our father. So clearly he knows their father is alive, even though he says, ask the question. It's, you know, what's the psychology of a person, what do you think, that, that would leave him acting the way he's been acting? Well, maybe if he thought his father was grieving him all these years, that was a way of punishing the brothers, that they had to see that and make them miserable for what he, they did to him. Maybe, yeah. You know, at first you tend to think, that, well, he was the favored son. He was the one the father gave this coat of many colors right. to. But that came at a price. And he yes. may have realized that, that his division from his brothers was his father's over-investment in him, and it could have been painful, and he didn't want to have anything to do with it. Yeah, I, th I think... Also, when he hadn't seen his brothers, he could put the whole thing in a place in his head that kind of was his own construction of it and not real. But then when he saw them in the flesh, 
Yeah. He had kind of been in denial and put, but when he saw them in the flesh and actually talked to them, he realized that he had to reconcile. Well, you know, it was the way the story is designed. He saw them, he messed around with them, and he sent them away. Doesn't even say exactly how long mm -hmm. they were gone. It says after a while, they ran out of food again. And, that's, and then they had to come back. And he had, of course, set this condition, don't come back unless you bring your brother Benjamin with you. You bring your youngest brother with you, then you can come back. But if, otherwise, don't come back. You're not going to see my face again. That's the whole drama. <coughs> and so, you know, Judah had to promise. And Jacob said, we're out of food. Go back to Egypt and get more food. And they, following the mystery man Joseph's instruction, said, we, we can't do it unless we bring, Joe, bring Benjamin with us. So he reluctantly let Benjamin go. And Judah says, you know, I promise I'll take care of him. No. And I'll be his, his guarantor that I'm going to bring him back. I'm his guarantor. Um, you don't even know how long it's been. Seems to me that the simplest explanation is usually the best explanation. And the simplest explanation is he was uh, sold into slavery when he was 17 years old. And this is 22 years later. And he had a totally different life. And this is just his life. And there isn't anything. He was a spoiled. What was he like at 17? Why did he piss them off so much? Why were they so jealous of him? Not, as it says, and every time we talk about it, when we're reading that portion, um, we remind ourselves that it's not just because he had these you know, dreams, which now, of course, come true in this week's Torah portion, that his brothers are all bowing down to him, and his father's bowing down to him, and everyone's bowing down to him. And, he, you know, and the Torah says they hated him for his dreams and for his words. It wasn't just that he had the dreams, it was how he told the dreams to them, which is what uh, endeared him so much to their hearts. It's not that you should have, there's nothing wrong with having dreams. Everybody should have dreams. Having dreams of grandeur and greatness when you're a teenager, I mean, I hope, you know, I hope you're having dreams when you're a teenager of what all the great things you're going to do when you grow up. You know, I'm going to be the Nelson Mandela, but then I have to go to jail for 20 years. <laughs> so maybe, I, you know, because it's those kinds of experiences that result in those kinds of people. It's that, those kinds of, it's, you know, the pains of growth. How do you grow to be a remarkable person when you look at all those remarkable people's lives? It's never that they had a great, easy life. Almost never. It's usually that, you know, that, that kind of character is forged out of suffering and challenges and that's why all the great mythologies of virtually every culture include you know these vision quests and include people having to go out and slay the dragons and all that it's it's not an easy thing to go out and be have the courage to go fight the dragon in the first place it's as terrifying it's always a scary terrifying thing to go out there into the world it's scary to grow up. I, I remember, maybe I've shared this before at some point, I remember, I think I was eight. I was in a restaurant with my parents having dinner. I have this, well, I have this memory, I don't know, but I have this very clear memory of sitting in the restaurant, turning to my father and saying, how am I going to know how to do this when I grow up? Hmm. It was scary. How am I going to know how to 
Order. Order food. <laughs> Do you know what? Order, pay, whatever. I just remember thinking, what do you have to know to be able to be an adult? Right. Do you, you know, remember his response? You know, <laughs> he said, don't worry, you'll, you'll know when you get there. Know. By the time you get there, you'll know. You know, and how many people, look, I was with someone who was uh, dying yesterday, it's, um, and his wife is, it's actually a beautiful story, but they've known each other since she was 12 years old. And she's now uh, 85, I guess, 86. No more. She's 92, what am I saying? Because wow. they've known each other 80 years. So, and she was 12. You know, so they've known this couple have known each other their whole lives, and literally their whole lives. It's not normal that you have this today, anyway, for sure. Maybe in the olden days, in the old world. Um, they grew up together. And she's saying what so many women, frankly, say it's situations like that, which is, how am I going to know how to fill in the blank? Pay the bills, do whatever, because he always did that, because he always took care of everything, because he always, and there's lots of, you know, relationships, um, maybe even here, where somebody does everything, and so the other person goes, how am I going to know how to do it? Because you know, you rise to the occasion, and you figure it out when you have to figure it out. But life is about facing those challenges and it's, it's the willingness and the ability to face the challenges of life, whatever they may be, you know, they're not all so dramatic that you have to go out and slay a dragon. They may be as, as ordinary as how you pay a bill, which to some is nothing and to others is the scariest thing in the world. How am I going to pay that? How do I even know where to go to, to know what to do? You know, the idea of feeling incompetent or competent to handle your own life and all these, that's why these stories still have power, because this is the human drama of growing up, going through changes, conquering life itself, and everybody has their own challenges. You know, it doesn't matter who you are, what your race is, what your religion is, what your economic status is. Really, they're all different challenges. It's all relative. So whatever your challenges are, are your challenges. You know, you could be born with you know, silver spoon in your mouth, whatever that means, and still have the same emotional challenges because what's scary is scary. <laughs> That's all. And, and everybody needs to learn their own competence and feel their own ability to maneuver in life and to be, to be successful in life. Yeah. I had an uncle Mars who lived with us. He and my mother were orphaned. Mm. And they were a pair very close. But my father wasn't too happy to have an extra person to take care of because there were two babies in the house. So it was on his case to get a job, to grow up, to go out in the world. To go and leave. <laughs> leave. Yeah. So one day he packed a suitcase and he left. And we got one postcard mm. from St. Louis. And it said, this is a big country. <laughs> wow. Well, it destroyed my mother, literally and figuratively. Mm -hmm. Because that was her one link to sanity. Yeah. And uh, today, we would have ways of tracing him. But in those days... Gone. Gone. Yeah. And I really missed him. He was the one who taught me how to tie my shoelaces, <laughs> read, the, read the comics to me. 
he was a, a parent to me, yeah. really. So I missed him also. So you know, you never know the the demons that we face, individuals, and the and the challenges that we overcome. But that's that is the human condition and the human situation, which is what it means to grow up, what it means to mature, is at every stage of our lives, because until they're over, it's not over, until it's over, and every stage of our lives, there's more growth, you know, until we end, and the more opportunity for growth, and every opportunity for growth is an opportunity to go outside of our comfort zone slightly to face some other challenge, whatever it might be. I'm going to learn a language. I'm going to learn how to take a bus and find my way around Los Angeles. Wouldn't that be a challenge? You know, <coughs> for most people here who just get in the car and drive somewhere, you know, whatever. The challenges, large and small, all are opportunities for finding our, our own center and our own strength and our own, our own inner, who we are. And that's part of the story. It's part of the, this whole drama. This is the longest story, you know, the whole Joseph story is the longest little novella in the Torah. It's the longest, most um, detailed <coughs> drama of family dynamics. And, um, and this, this, which I'm now going to read, this um, plea of, of Judah's is also the longest speech in the Torah. This is the longest speech in the Torah. Uh, Judah's long plea for um, letting Benjamin go. Uh, <coughs> we, we know that the backstory of why Judah, why is Judah the, act, the primary actor in this story, by the way? And once again, for those of you who hang out with me when I talk about Torah, to remind you that one of the ways you need to look at the lenses to which you need to look at Torah is to remember that somebody wrote this. Like every other story, somebody wrote it, and just like every other story, they wrote it, they wrote it for a reason, they wrote it this way for a reason, they had these actors in it for a reason, and they had the storyline this way for a reason, and so you ask, well, why this way? Well, the, well, the brothers, you know, there's 12 of them, there's 11 other brothers, uh, why Judah? Why did he become the main actor, number one, and why... Why is Judah so different, allegedly, now than he was when... When they, when they decided to do away with Joseph, it was Reuben who uh, seemed to be the leader. Yes. And so... It was Reuben who didn't want to kill him in the first yeah. place. They were going to kill him. Reuben yeah. said, let's just throw him in a pit, thinking he was going to come back later and, and rescue him so from you the would guess that you would it would suggest that Reuben would be talking here, but... I don't know why. I can't answer questions. Okay. I'll just quote Judah at the time. So when they threw him in the pit, Judah is the one who said to his brothers, How will it profit us if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Let us rather sell him to the Ishmaelites. Then our hand will not be on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh. His brothers heeded him, and they pulled him out of the pit and they sold him. It was Judah who came up with the idea of selling him into slavery and who actually was the leader of selling him into slavery. That's, that's the one piece we know about Judith. Well, so we know he's a leader. They listen to him. We know he's a leader. Now and he's groveling. what are we called today? We Jews. Jews. 
Why are we called Jews today? From Judah. From Judah. We are Judahites. Judah, the tribe of Judah, becomes the dominant tribe from which we as a people end up later, much later than this, taking our name in the first place. So whoever wrote this, from whatever historical vantage point they edited and wrote the Torah, and these stories is reading back into the Torah, the, the dominance of Judah as a person who ends up being the tribe from whom we draw our very identity. So we want Judah to be redeemed <laughs> because that's us, because this, Judah is us. So when we're reading this at a later time, thousand years ago, we're reading this as Judahites going, you know, at least we, we got redeemed. We <laughs> redeemed our, our own ancestor, our own sort of primary ancestor comes around and becomes a good guy and not just a guy who sold his brother into slavery. So. Why not have changed the <clears throat> earlier story too to make that Reuben or somebody? Yeah, well, because then uh, why not? Could have been. Good question. As a writer, yes, yeah, so why that? Well, first of all, takes all the drama away from Judah if you don't start out with him being one way and end up with him being somewhere else. All these people are all about change and transformation. It's, you know, Jacob starting out as this nasty little kid who follows his mother and steals his brother's blessings and whatever, and then goes out on his own little, you know, vision quest out into the experiences God out in the, in the wilderness, lying down on a rock. God was in this place and I didn't know it. And he has this whole drama and he's wrestling with angels and he's, you know, all, he's got to start somewhere to get somewhere. Because it has to be a way of teaching us that we too can get somewhere. When we're not so happy with our own behavior, you're not defined by your worst act in life. That's part of what Jewish life, I think, and spiritual life is all about. That's what the high holidays are all about. For me, it's reminding us every year that we don't have to be trapped by our worst behavior and our worst choices because we all make bad choices at different times in our lives. You know, and so often we, even if other people forgive us and let us go and go while well, you're a kid, we carry that around with ourselves as our own judgment all the time of what we did because we know more than anybody else what we were thinking and what we weren't and whatever. Our own little nastiness of one kind or another at some person, something we did or something we thought. You know, we have our own thoughts with us too. Everybody else only has what we say and what we do. Everybody judges us not by what we think. They don't know what we're thinking unless we tell them. So all I know about everybody in the room is A, how you look, which doesn't tell me anything meaningful about you, and what you say and what you do. That's how I know who you are. That's how everybody judges us by what we say and what we do. That's who we are to those people. But for us, we are every thought we have all the time. All that running commentary in our minds is us to us. And whatever arguments we're having with ourselves that no one else ever gets to hear, because it's all going on in here, you know, about our own behavior, about our own failures, about our own shortcomings, about our own successes, about what we should have done and could have done, and how come we did this, and I let that opportunity go by, and I, I was going to say something to her, and I didn't say anything to her. And all that stuff <laughs> is all in my head, and all you know is I'm standing here. You know, you have no idea all this stuff is going on in my head. I'm carrying it around with me all the time. And, and part of what our our holidays and our festivals and our, our sacrifice moments, which is part of what the High Holidays and Yom Kippur certainly is all about, it's, it's a day of sacrifice. It's a day of afflicting ourselves and part of that to cleanse ourselves in a, in a healthy way, 
if the theory is to do it as a community in a healthy way, not in a harmful way, part of that is to push the reset button in our, and the delete button <laughs> in our own minds and our own souls to go, okay, yeah, I did all of that, and I thought all of that, and all of that stuff was, you know, let me start over again. New year. We get another new year. We get to have two new years at least. Tom <laughs> has four new years, but that's a different story. And, and new years. And new years are opportunities to start again. And this story is an opportunity to start again. And look how hard it is. It's so hard that they, all the brothers are terrified, panicked. You know, all of a sudden, the guy with all the power turns out to be Joseph. Just, you know, just the thoughts that must have been in their minds. Uh, the terror, the fear, they were, they were literally struck speechless when Joseph reveals himself in the story because of all that they imagine is about to happen to them. You know, it's like, gotcha. And, and doesn't, and it's the, because it doesn't, it's, the story's so good, so that's why I wrote that way, because otherwise, whoever wrote it that way, it was a she wrote it that way. For yeah. people that think uh, the Messiah's coming through the tribe of Judah, where did that come from? Who, who picked the tribe of Judah? Well, that, that was a historical reality. That after they came into the land and they had they, they divided up the land of Israel among all these tribes, and then they had people coming in from the north and the south, coming in and fighting them and taking them. Remember, all the northern tribes were disappeared, and <coughs> it just ended up that the tribe of Judah became the more dominant tribe historically. And so, when you're writing the the story of the Jewish people. Which is what the Torah, in part, is. You go back to you know to you justify the reality of who's got the power and and who's the who is the most dominant tribe. So that's part of it. So the um, as I said, this is the longest speech in Genesis, and if I don't start reading it, I'll never read it. But that's the way I do. Um, and of course, Vayigash, um, uh, the very first word in the Torah portion. Vayigash elav Yehuda. Vayigash means he came close, he drew near, come close. Which is, um, as often happens in the, the names, even though the names of the Torah portions appear to be um, almost capricious, that is, they, they're, they're always just the first significant word of the, of the portion. That's where the name comes from, the Hebrew name. Same as the books, you know, the names of the books of the Torah are just the first significant word in the book becomes the name, but somehow it's always more than that. Somehow it's most of the time thematically more powerful and deeper than that. And Vayigash, which is Vayigash Elav Yehuda, literally means and Judah came close to him. That is, he approached, who, who's the him? Spadamet said it was himself. You know, so the, the simple reading of the text is he came close to him meaning Joseph, right? Joseph has just made has just made a pronouncement that you know Benjamin's staying with me. I'm putting him in jail. You guys go home. You guys can all leave, but I'm but I, Benjamin's staying and locking him up in jail because he allegedly stole this this uh, goblet that Joseph had stuck and put in the sack to to yeah. So what appears there is that Judah comes close to it approaches Joseph, but the midrash has burnt. Indicates says no, Vayigash. He came close. He he approached himself. He was willing to examine and look at and his essence. Who am I now? This is the moment when I stand up or I don't. When I slink away. 
with my brothers and go back to dad and go, oh, what do you expect? You know, I, I couldn't, what could I do? Most powerful guy in the world, as far as I know, just kept our brother and put him, threw him in jail and he looks like he stole this. I don't know how he ended up in his head, but it looks like he stole something. And by the way, they never defend Benjamin. This isn't a defense. No one stands up and goes, he didn't do that. He's our brother. He would never do that. There's never a defense of him. For all we know, they thought he actually did steal it. You know, the appeal has nothing to do with he's innocent. The appeal is on a whole different level. So, Vayigash, this is what it takes. What does it take to be this person and not the person of 22 years ago, the Judah of 22 years ago? It takes the willingness to look in the mirror and, and look at your own soul and, come, and open up and be intimate with yourself and what you're really made out of. And then to either stand up or not, to say the words that need to be said or not, to, to run away. And what's powerful here is he doesn't run away. So Judah approached him and said, By <coughs> you leave my Lord, in the version I've got, please give your servant a hearing and do not let your anger flare up at your servant. And just notice how many times he says servant and Lord and servant and servant because this is like the fulfillment of the dream of the 17-year-old that they're all, he's the Lord and they're all bowing down to him. Anyway, for you are like Pharaoh. Literally, he was like Pharaoh. He was the Pharaoh substitute. He was, you know, the vice president or whatever, and the president wasn't around. Um, my Lord asked his servants, do you have a father? You set this up. He's reminding him it's your fault. Do you, have a, do you have a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, we have an aged father, an aged father, and a young boy of his old age whose brother or full brother, it's part of the drama here is, that they keep acting and talking all of a sudden as if there weren't four wives of Jacob, there was one wife. There weren't 12 sons, there were two sons. That's how Jacob, Jacob is now talking as, from a, such a totally different place that as if my father's had a wife who died and had two sons and one of them died and there's only one left. Well, what about, you know, it's like, what do you mean? There's only one, that's how he's, he's now characterizing the relationship and evidently has made peace with the reality of the complexity of Jacob's love and sorrow and loss and let me just remind you because uh, one of the things the rabbis point out in commentaries is that one of the reasons that this is the new Judah is because in the meantime we had the Tamar story that where Judah grows up, has three sons, and two of them die. And <clears throat> we'll go back to the whole drama of Tamar and Judah, but what changed, one of the things that changes him so profoundly is he becomes a father after the Joseph sold into slavery story when he was just the older brother. After that, he gets married. He has children. Two of them die. He goes through that trauma of losing a child, of knowing what it's like to be a father who loses a child, which is what they just set up earlier for their own father. And imagine the shift and the transformation that inevitably had to take place in his own life and how he now sees his father and what he did what he and his brothers 
inflicted upon their father, which clearly at the time they had no clue they were doing because in their naivete and their childlike view of the world, the reason they got rid of Joseph was so daddy would love us. Because when Joseph would, once Joseph's gone, I mean, that's what they say in the text. Well, so he loves him, so let's get rid of him so daddy will love us. As if that's the way the human mind and the human soul and the human heart works, that when he's gone, then daddy will go, okay, well, now I can love you guys instead. You know, instead of exactly the opposite, the, the alleged perceived death of his child sent him into lifelong grief and withdrawal so that he shut down altogether from everybody. And Judah now has had his own personal experiences of that, of that trauma, of what the, the real grief is all about, and the grief of losing a child, and now knows what would happen to his father if yet, just like what happened to him, a second, his second favorite son now disappears. So his whole life perspective has changed. It's not just that he's older, it's that his own experiences now put him in a place to have a totally different sense of empathy for what, his fa what they put his father through all this time. Yeah. I always thought, too, that it wasn't just that the brothers were jealous of, of um, Joseph. Joseph. They thought he was a narcissist. The world was well, better off without him. They were doing it in a way mean? of uh, <laughs> yeah. to get rid of him. He's a teenager. He's supposed to be a narcissist. <laughs> um, he's supposed to grow out of it, but at some point you go through times when the world's all well, about you. Well, they must have thought he was more of a narcissist yeah, than well, they were. Yes. No. Well, he was the favorite. He was the favorite. He got this, he got that. He was like homebody and then, you know. And the baby. You know. But now, does, he, does Judah not know that Joseph is who he's talking to? Because yes. No, he doesn't know. He has no he know. Nobody knows yet. Okay. All he knows is that this is the guy who's controlling life and death. <laughs> so he says, he alone, so his brother is dead, as if this, the women's commentary adds full, full brother in here, if you're reading that text, but that's not what the, the Torah says, the Torah just says, his brother, you know, we're all his brothers. Is there a different word for... No, it's all his brother, it's just brother, 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 but that's part of the drama really here, is that even, he acts as if he's the only brother. His brother's dead. What brother? What do you mean? They're all, they're all, they're all the same father. They're all brothers. You know, half, what? I mean, you know, some families emphasize step and half and this, and other families, you're all the same, even if you're adopted, and if you're not, if you have the same biological parents, not the same biological parents. You know, it's an attitude that changes from family to family. And here, part of this whole drama, you know, Jacob had four wives and 12, 13 kids. Twelve sons and a daughter, you know, and they were all siblings. And yet, they the way they talk about each other is not like they're all equal siblings, in that sense. So, and you said to your servants, "Bring him down here to me, and let me lay my eyes on him." But we said to my lord, "The lad, the lad cannot leave his father. If he leaves his father, he will die." And you then said to your servant, "If your youngest brother doesn't come down with you, you'll never see my face again." So, when we went up to your servant, my father, we related to him my Lord's words, and when our father said, go back and buy us a bit of food, we said, we can't go down, only if our youngest brother is with us will we go down, for we won't be allowed to see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. And your servant, my father, then said to me, how many times is it? Everyone's a servant. Everyone is the servant, the servant, the servant, the servant, the servant, as his way of trying to better up Joseph. He says, you know that the... That of the two my wife bore me, one is gone from my side. 
my wife as if it's obvious, right? As if there was only one wife when you really have four of them. And I said, surely he's been ripped to shreds. I haven't seen him to this day. They don't know what happened to him, really. All they know is they sold him into slavery. But even then, they weren't willing to say, that's the other part of this drama is all this time, they didn't know whether he was alive or dead. They certainly didn't know that he was ripped to shreds. You know, they knew they pretended that that happened. They brought this, his coat back with blood on it and let their father draw his own conclusions. They never, in the Torah, they never said, we saw him dead, we saw an animal kill him. They just, look, look what we found, Dad. It's basically, look what we found, Dad. And the dad said, oh my God, he's been torn to shreds by an animal. And they just let him draw his own conclusion. And in all these 22 years, in all these years, even after they grew, and even after they saw what it did to their father through their own shame, and their own guilt, they never went to their dad and said, you know what, dad, he may be alive. We don't really know what happened to him. Let, let me just tell you what really happened. They never said, let me tell you what really happened. In fact, in the whole Torah, they never tell them what really happened. Maybe they did, but it's not in the text. <clears throat> so, surely he's been ripped to shreds. I haven't seen him to this day. If you take this one too from me, and some calamity falls him, you will lower my gray head in woe to Sheol. This is one of the few references in the Torah, there's a couple of them, one after the other, that um, of Sheol, Sheolah in Hebrew, actually. Um, what's Sheol? Hell? It's our version of Underworld. afterlife. It's clearly some afterlife. It's clearly the, it's clearly the, the sense of Sheol has always been, it's a place you go, after you die, but it's never clearly described or explained in the Torah. It's one of those things. The Torah is very terse about afterlife. There is a sense of afterlife. When Abraham dies, um, it says he's gathered to his kin um, at a ripe old age and severs, uh, and he's fulfilled in life. Uh, the opposite of poor Jacob. Jacob, who is about to describe his life to Pharaoh as few and hard have been the years of my life, He's over 100 already, but you know, few and hard have been the years of my life, because that's how he saw his life. You know, his own, how we hold, that's part of the drama of, of what the Torah teaches, is the power of attitude. The power of how you see and interpret your own experiences, for good or for bad. And you know, Joseph had all these not-so-good experiences in life, but his vision of himself and how he experienced these things was always somehow positive. He always had this, you know, can do, I'm going to make this work attitude. He was thrown in a pit, sold into slavery, ends up in Potiphar's wife, thing, gets thrown in jail, gets accused of rape that he didn't do, he gets in jail, he, you know, for, it doesn't even say how long, but it was a long time. People came down, people were freed from jail, it was all there, Joseph, he's in and out, and somehow his attitude is always, um, and everybody liked him everywhere he went, right? <laughs> Well, if everybody liked him everywhere he went, and he was the favorite everywhere he went, that was because of him. That wasn't just because he was cute. He might have been cute. He might have been good looking. But that only gets you in the door. You know, if you're a jerk, people don't like you no matter how good looking you are. So the fact is that he clearly 
managed through his own attitude and his own actions and his own behavior and the person that he brought to every one of those dramas and un unfortunate experiences of life doesn't matter. He transcended them because of who he was, because of his own faith in himself, his own vision carrying over these dreams perhaps from his childhood. His own faith is going to work out. Somehow it's going to be fine. I'm going to make this work. Whatever. And th that's part of the lesson of the power of the Joseph story. Yeah. Sheol. Sheol, yeah, back before. to Sheol. Even though people say go down to Sheol, yes. it's always down. Yeah. It, it really, hell is a very, I think, not a good translation. No. Because it's not the Christian idea of a place of punishment, right. eternal punishment. No, it's not about, it's it not the Christian never comes up as a, punish, a place of punishment, it's just the place you go. There's a place you go and you either go in peace or you may go in, in trauma. Because you're going to go no matter what. Well, there's the thing. Look, everybody dies. I know it's a shock to hear that, what? but you know, <laughs> I understand that it's a shocking thing because it seems somehow remain shocking to people no matter what. But there's still a hundred percent mortality rate in the world. You know, no matter what we do, no matter how what good our medicines are, or vitamins are, or our exercise routines are, or our yoga is, or our meditation is, no matter what. It's 100% mortality. That's la, 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 la. Yeah, right. That's the, so far. So far. It's not over. And that's the point. It's not over until it's over. And as long as you're here, there's always, so far. You know, I'm still here. You never know. Because you never know. It's like, you know, it's a human, that's part of what it means to be a human being. Somehow we manage to live these lives as if. As if they're going to go on forever. Or as if whatever. Because, you know... That's why people don't buy burial plots and all kinds of other things. You know, I don't want to be the evil eye or whatever it happens to be. If I'm ready, then maybe I'll, you know, I'll die or whatever. So I bought my plots, you know, 20 years ago. Whatever. It didn't even... People act as if they're never going to die all the time. People act that way. They don't plan for it. They don't prepare for it. It's like a shock, you know, to the system when somebody's dying no matter what. Nelson Mandela died horrible, but, you know, he was 95. You know, it's like, if, yes, it'd be nice if you lived another 20 years for all of us, but eventually, no matter what, there's an end. That's the nature of be, having a body. You know, it's not a judgment. It's the nature of being a physical being in the world that we get older and we get sick and things happen and eventually we wear out, you know, whatever that happens to be. And whatever, we want to have our health span equal our lifespan, of course, and to have it be as long as possible, as long as it's healthy and all that, but that's the reality of life. And the constant of willingness to confront that and to deal with that and to wrestle with, with mortality is, is one of the issues of Torah, it's one of the issues of, of being human itself. And finding meaning, it's not about how long you live, it's about the life that you live in, the, in your days. It's not the length of, it's the meaning of your lives that matter for everybody. And in my experience with people, it's not that they're necessarily afraid of death itself, they're more afraid of insignificance. And that, you know, a life well lived generally provides a different kind of uh, perspective on ending life than a life that's con where people constantly feel like they haven't done and they haven't accomplished and they haven't and they haven't and they haven't and they haven't. And, they haven't. Um, and <coughs> that's all in here. It's never out there. All of that judgment is our own judgments that we bring. Nobody else brings that judgment to us. Most people are 
are always telling us better things about us than we think about ourselves. You know, particularly for me, it's one of those years where everybody's come back. Like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> the other day, it's like, really? So, you know, but also, it's, like, it's nice for me, but it's a nice reminder that you don't, you never know what gesture or what word or what moment or what anything that you do in life, in relationships, for all of us, affect somebody in a positive way. You don't know unless they come and tell you, and most people don't come back and tell you that something you said or something you did mattered to them, mattered in just in your relationships with your friends, with your kids, with, you know, anything. So, um, I don't know how I got into that, but um, here we are. Um, so now, please let your servant. Um, oh, that was going down to Shoal. And now, if I go to your to your servant, my father, and the lad, uh, whose whole being is bound up in his, is not with us, and he sees that the lad is not there, he will die, literally. I mean, that's the assumption. He will he'll literally kill him. And your servants will have lowered your servant, our father's gray head, in anguish to Shoal. As he's talking, as if, first of all, all of this was through an interpreter, by the way. Because earlier it says, this is all with an interpreter. They don't know that Joseph speaks Hebrew. Mm-hmm. He's a, he looks like an Egyptian. He's an Egyptian. They're talking with a Hebrew translator. They're in the room, back and forth, all of this conversation. Mm-hmm. Until he sends everybody out of the room and suddenly speaks Hebrew and goes, hey, I'm your brother. <laughs> you know, that's why it was such a shock. He wasn't even, you know, as far as they knew, he didn't even understand what they were saying. Um, so they spoke to each other and front of him and he didn't he knew what they were saying so <clears throat> for your servant made himself responsible for the lad to my father saying if I don't bring him back to you I will stand guilty before my father for all time so now please let your servant remain as my lord's slave in place of the lad let the lad go home with his brothers for how can I go home to my father without the lad and thus see the harm my father will suffer mm-hmm. it's that speech that changed everything and changed Joseph and opened him up and said he couldn't stand it any any longer. It's that speech (coughs) that told him the transformation that Judah had gone through as an adult from the time he was his brother out in the field and sold him into slavery. He doesn't know anything about the story of Judah. He doesn't know what he's been through. He doesn't know that he's had kids die. He doesn't know any of this. All he knows is what he now sees and hears. That's what I said before. So how does he judge him? The only way he could judge him was by what he did and how he acted. And what he did now was exactly the opposite of what happened with Joseph. Instead of, you know, abandoning and selling off his brother and Joseph's favorite brother, he offers himself as a sacrifice, literally, in his place. And says, let me imprison me instead and send him back. And it's that sacrifice, power of sacrifice, that willingness to place himself in place of Benjamin that shifts the whole rest of the story and, and is, this, is the cause of their, apparent anyway, cause of their redemption. Because there was no food and they were starving to death. This is their redemption. This is either the difference between literally life and death anyway, have food or not have food. There was, there was a famine, there was no food. In anywhere but Egypt because of Joseph. That's the only place you could get food in the whole Middle East. That's how the story is told. That's the whole point of it. So Joseph then saying, you know, can no longer restrain himself. Before all these things, so he sent everyone away 
for two reasons. One is theoretically that he didn't want to show his emotion in front of, because he's the boss, in front of all of his underlings. And number two, because now he was going to have a one-on-one -on -one with his brothers in Hebrew. And he didn't want that. So send everyone away so that no one was there when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. He gave voice to a loud wail. Imagine all of a sudden, you know, all of this emotion that's been built up for all this time. And the Egyptians heard, Pharaoh's palace heard that there was something going on. Joseph then said to his brothers, and he, Yosef, I am Joseph. Is my father alive? And his brothers were struck speechless, unable to answer him. You may remember one of the things that makes this phrase of Joseph, I am an Yosef, uh, basically, I am your brother Joseph, so memorable was uh, the 1960 uh, experience with Pope John the 23rd. Pope John the 23rd uh, was one of the first to sort of break the the Catholic Jewish uh, divide as a pope and reach out to to the Jewish community and begin the process of sort of reconciliation. And what eventually ended up in the pronouncements by the Catholic Church that Jews were not guilty for killing Jesus and all that all that things that went on. Pope John the Twenty Third had 130. Jewish leaders gathered in the Vatican to meet, and when they got there, he said, Ani Yosef, I am Joseph, your brother, because his baptismal name was Joseph, mm -hmm. wow. was Yosef. So he used that to all of them, which was obviously very powerful for him to say that, Ani Yosef, I am Joseph, your brother, like Joseph here, the reconciliation. So, <clears throat> you know, it's the power of, of writing and Torah and text that thousands of years later, this very encounter that was so dramatic becomes, you know, a, again, a sort of paradigmatic moment that can be used in the modern world as well. So, but the power of this, which we're not going to get to because I'm just but the power of this story, to me, really the punchline of the story is not that Joseph reveals himself, but it's, again, how he holds his experience. They, of course, are terrified, appropriately, and they recoil, it says, and they don't know what to do, and then Joseph says to his brothers, come here, which they don't have any choice, so they do, and he says, I am Joseph, your brother, right? This is it. And Yosef, I am Joseph. And Yosef, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold to Egypt. But don't let that upset you. <laughs> don't let that bother you. Don't be chagrined because you sold me here, for it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. There have already been two years of famine. There's going to be another five. So God sent me ahead of you to assure your survival in the land and to keep you alive for a great deliverance. It's not you who sent me here, but God, who made me a father to Pharaoh, lord of all his household, ruler of the whole land of Egypt. So now go back to my, my dad and bring him here and let's all reconcile and live happily ever after. Essentially, that's the, what's so dramatic is, as I said, Joseph's attitude was an attitude that's possible for everyone. Forgiveness. Which is that he was able to forgive because he saw what happened to him not as something bad in the first place. You know, it's when you look back at your life with 2020 hindsight, 
and you go, yeah, it seemed like a curse at the time, but it really turned out to be a blessing. That thing that I ended up having to be kicked out of that job or this thing or that relationship that didn't work, you know, that I was so devastated at the time and now here I am. 20 years later, 2 years later, 10 years later, 50 years later, whatever, and I look at my life and I'm happy with my life. And if I'm happy with my life now, then I must have been good that all that stuff happened that led me here because here I am. You know, when you get to that point, and that's how Joseph saw every stage of his life. Thrown in the pit, sold to this, thrown into jail, accused of that, blah, 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 blah. And all of a sudden, here I am. You know, God sent me. This must have been, you know, divine, the divine plan. This was God's plan. God's plan was, you, how, do I, how could I get here? The only way I could get here is so you sold me into slavery. You sold me to the Israelites. Otherwise, I'd have been back there. We'd all have starved to death. If you'd have just loved me and been taking me in and everything would have been fine as brothers, we'd be back there starving to death. Instead of here I am in a position to rescue us and deliver us. Because this is how God works. Yeah. Last night I heard something that was analogizing Mandela mm -hmm. to Joseph in terms of when he came out of jail, mm -hmm. he was not angry, he yeah. was forgiving, and that some of his jailers became his bodyguards yes. later. Not only that, but I learned today that he was offered freedom after 14 years, but it was freedom with conditions. I didn't hear what those conditions mm -hmm. were. But because of the conditions, he said no. So I was thinking, what if he had said yes? You know, yeah, of had, had he not stayed the additional, you know, 10, 20 years, would he have, you know, 13. had the, yeah. the, you know, the reconciliation? Would he have become president? Would they have written the Constitution that right. way? Right. Right. Yeah. There's. I mean, the, some of the uh, couple of quotes of his tonight that I'm sharing that are, you know, about his attitude about incarceration and about following your principles and about living your life uh, in a way that, that, that expresses what's worth suffering for and what's worth <coughs> jail for or, or whatever the consequences end up being. Um, that's why I was thinking about the movie last night, the guy was willing to do whatever because his goal was to do something grand and powerful. Uh, yeah. I think the attitude he carried with him in every situation was that it was his responsibility to do the good he could do with where he was, to interpret the dreams in such a way that um, brought other people forward to whatever it was, he was going to make the situation one in which he did good. Yeah. And it's also, this is about faith. See, this is also what faith means. Faith is, this is an expression of, of I think what today people would call faith. Joseph had faith that not only faith in himself, that he could make life work, he, he acted in such a way that he attracted people to him, that they were doing him favors at every stage that ended up putting him in a position to be able to do, to have Pharaoh call him and check out his dreams. And, you know, the only way, reason he was able to do that was that people knew of him, and they knew of him because of his attitude and because he was there willing to help everybody. You know, here, let me, let me explain your dreams to the other prisoners and whatever, whatever it happened to be. But, but he also had, as he says, four times here, he says, this was God's choice. Four times. God's decision. God's decision. God... You thought to do me harm. You thought you were maybe doing me harm. You were really just 
doing God's will. You were just really an agent of God and of the what needed to happen for the great deliverance to take place, ultimately. And that's, that's what he meant by faith. So he had faith that at every stage, somehow this was going to work out because God had a plan for him. He believed those dreams that he had as a child, that he could do great things, and he was going to do great things somehow. So even in the worst of times, when he was a slave, you know, and he was a servant, and he was in jail, he was waiting for the opportunity for that plan that he believed was going to take place to happen. And therefore, he took the opportunities. I mean, how many times do people have opportunities that they ignore, you know, or they turn down, or they walk away from? You know, and how many times do people go, oh, if I'd only, if I'd only, I should have, did I know? Should have bought that piece of property. Now, $20 million. Whatever. You know, people do that all the time. The, the opportunities come all the time. Some people seize them and some people don't. Some people see the whatever happens in their life as one more step along the way to success, whatever success means to them, and other people don't. It's like, you know, the, the uh, Edison, you know, Edison was the most famous for that, right? I don't know, a thousand times he would have experiments about the light bulb or whatever it happened to be, one of all of his famous stories of people saying, you know, what did it feel like to fail a thousand times, and Edison going on, I, I never failed. Everyone taught me something about the next, got me closer to my goal. Mm -hmm. You know, those are two very different attitudes about the same experience. Mm -hmm. We all fail on our way to success. Everybody, that's how we get to success. We fail our way to success. From, you know, we fail our way to learn how to walk as a little baby. We fail our way to learning how to ride a bike as a cat or anything we do. You fall down. You can't not fall down. That's the nature of how you learn. It's getting up that matters. It's not falling down. Everybody falls down all the time in all kinds of different ways. You have an attitude of now I know how to balance this way versus that way, and I learn this and I learn that until I get there, or you quit. You know, and the difference for most most of the time, historically, between success and failure is quitting. It's not falling down. It's quitting before you get to the goal. You know, guy with the ice last night. I mean. That was insane to watch, but you know, it's the next step and take the next step and take the next step and, and, and all that. And to me, that's part of what the Torah story is about. It's really this Joseph. That's the punchline of the story for me. Is look, this. I know what you, you have to change your attitude because my attitude, brothers, is that you are just helping God fulfill what needed to happen so that I could be in this position to be able to save you all. So, you know, come on down and I'm going to figure out how to have you all live here in peace. And they never trusted him to the very end of their lives, really. I mean, that's part of the story. Do you blame them? Very, I don't blame them at all. But look how hard it is to let go, you know, and to take yes for an answer. <laughs> for most people, it's very hard to take yes for an answer. you got to, you got to know in your mind, it's hard to hear the yes. He kept saying yes. Yes, 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 it's fine. Everything's fine. Everything's fine. And then when Dad died, they were panicked all over again. After 17 years, Jacob lived in Goshen after they bring him down for, according to the Torah, 17 more years. They're all reconciled. They're all back together, living together, the same number of years that Joseph lived first with his father. He got to live with his father again, so to speak, not really living with him because he was... They were in Goshen when he was living in the palace. But either way, 17 years later, they're still 
not convinced. Yeah, but that shows at least they had common conscience. Yeah. Because if they were like, hey, great, we're off the hook here, you know, let's go party. I, and I agree. They, <laughs> like, they carried that with them forever because they... And that's their punishment. Or, yeah. You know, instead of being... You know, that's the hell of what's hell of hell yeah. life. It's what you carry with you in your own mind, your own punishment. Beating themselves up forever and never really being convinced or sure that Joseph really forgave them. Maybe it was just for Dad's sake. That's why they were afraid when he died. Maybe he was just he was just putting on this show because. Well, it's a pretty horrible thing they did. <clears throat> yeah, they sold their yourself. They were going to kill him. I don't him. know that you can forgive yourself a hundred percent for doing that. And it, it or whether you should. You should exactly. The question is. Is do you hold on to because? It's not yeah. that you. you I mean, you, should, pretty, you shouldn't forget and let yourself off the but hook. But they believe that Joseph had done that. They were afraid that Joseph really right. wasn't telling the truth about his own attitude. And because it, it was so foreign to them. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't always work out that way because in The Godfather 1, the brother was killed after the father died. Yeah, no, it doesn't. Listen, that's exactly right. So, you know, they, they were totally justified in carrying that sense of guilt with them for their whole lives, even though they had the opportunity to think exactly the opposite. Just like Joseph would say, look, wait, look how smart we were. We sold Joseph into slavery and he ended up in a place where he could rescue us. In any event, um, I run over and um, Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. And uh, have a lovely day.